Welcome to the fourth episode of Who's Editing, a thought experiment in which my guest and I appoint ourselves editors of a comic book line at DC Comics, but the joke's on us because we can only use the characters of a specific issue of Who's Who, and in fact must use them. I'll let you in all the rules, but first, let's welcome my guest uh, with which to create a line of books, or really two lines of books, based on Who's Who number four, a relative newcomer to the podcastosphere. I recently had him on an episode of Panel by Panel, and this is his encore performance on Fire and Water's weekly Canada Day. Welcome to the show, Max Traver. Hi, Cisco. Thanks for having me. So this uh, issue four, challenges? I mean, there are a lot of, there are eight heroes in here with the the title of captains so a lot of these books kind of sound the same if you leave the titles alone yeah that was one of the things that scared me about this issue was like am i just going to be stuck with some big you know team captains concept you know and uh believe me my brain goes that way towards the cheesiest target and that didn't happen, so I was glad to avoid that. But like, it was still kind of a challenge going. And my next character has the name Captain, you know. And uh, but that actually they all do. Yeah, that didn't end up being the biggest challenge. The biggest challenge was the idea that did occur to me, and whether I should kill it before it, you know, escaped or not. Okay, but there is a lot of genre diversity in this. I mean, uh, you know, even within those captains. There's a lot of different tones and there's like, there's a mystery character, there's a pirate character, there's, you know, there, it's not just, there's just like a wartime character. It's not just superheroes. So is, was that helpful to you or not? Yes, because I ended up with something that needed to be attacked from a lot of different angles. So they provided a lot of that leverage. Like I needed a way to work in different approaches to the central problem, I'll say. I think it is helpful because it creates a diversity that's right there from the beginning. And it's, it's not like, okay, because there is a problem in here, you know, Captain Marvel, Captain Marvel Jr. They're essentially similar, very similar characters with very similar names and they each have to have their own book. And so the fact that like the next one over, okay, that's a war book. So it doesn't necessarily need not to say that you couldn't do Captain Storm uh, as a superhero <laughs> or, or, you know, we have we kind of have carte blanche on this. Let's just mention the rules. Our lines of books must include a monthly series from every hero character or team featured. And we can give a villain or other entry their own series if we absolutely feel the need to. But we can only name a single villain from that issue to receive the honor. We imagine that we're coming back from some crisis or other. DC has a lot of them, so we can reboot <laughs> characters or use any continuities version. It's really up to us. Titles don't have to match the entries. So there, there aren't necessarily eight Captain comics uh, in there. Although I, I kind of feel like I could have gone, okay, it's Captain Chemical, Captain Chlorophyll, and it's all going to be Captain Comics. Yeah. <laughs> it's, just change every name. I literally had a book called The Team Captains for a bit. Okay, okay, yeah, it's doable, but we can change those titles so long as the core concept or, you know, that that character that is in Who's Who does star in the book, or, you know, even if we can transform that character a little bit. We're each pitching our own ideas, and we'll sort of end up with two possible lines of books. Listeners, you decide which books you'd actually want to read, and we'll do a little bit of that as well uh, with our limited pocketbook money. With issue four of Who's Who, we have to include 
a minimum of 19 books, according to these rules, <laughs> and a maximum of 20. Max, I'm going to hand it off to you first, and we'll do a bit of back and forth in entry order, and we'll keep our bonus villain series for the end, if we have one. Alrighty. Did you have a strategy going into this? Because I went pretty dark and like off-brand Vertigo almost on some of mine. Uh, and I made sure that not every title was named Captain, this or that. Although I'm surprised. I kept more of that than I thought I initially would. What was your strategy going into this? Well, it's funny you should mention Vertigo because there's a character in here that a lot of this really hinges on. I don't think I went totally Vertigo in tone unless we're talking very early Vertigo proto like before it became a thing right because this is still very much a um a comic book story it doesn't get like sandman mystery theater or anything so i'd say proto vertigo but my strategy ended up becoming about a um an imprint within dc comics that was created i have a whole background like with the real world secret of this concept like is that no one was paying attention to DC anymore because their books were considered static and boring. And so this imprint was given the go-ahead, the green light, to attract attention. It has baked into its concept an endpoint where it will erase itself. And then the return to status quo will be hailed as a return to glory. And they can go back to making the same books they've always made but get praise for them instead of getting yawned at. Okay. So it's, it's a little bit... Like, on the one hand, it's Young Animal in terms of, like, creating an imprint for it. On the other, it's Flashpoint. Yeah, I'm a fan of a lot of these failed imprints, like the first wave at DC that no one remembers, where it's like Batman existed alongside Doc Savage in the shadow. Right. All these things that failed, and I was the only person. Red Circle. and Yeah, you know. Yeah. And so I was like, I'm, I can't believe it took me this long to finally make one of these things that the majority of fans will hate, but it's like they were supposed to hate it. Because now they're back buying DC Comics with a vengeance because they're like, we want the regular stuff back. So this is what's interesting about this show is that each guest has brought their own agenda to it uh, and, and tr maybe trying to be different from one another, having listened to some of these shows. But some have gone very, very, let's recreate everything like Ryan Daly did. Some went more traditional like, uh, like Shaq Matthews did. So in your case, it's like creating an imprint that is supposed to clash with normal DC continuity and, and be its own thing. So it's, it's a little more Ryan Daly in a way, but it is very, very unique. So I'm glad you're bringing this different color to it. Yeah, this took on a life of its own. I, I, I'm glad we're finally recording it because I was still adding little details 10 minutes before the phone call. So yeah, okay. I'm, I'm just, I want <laughs> it to stop. Just, just like the the fictional readers are supposed to want this to end, you know. I, I guess that's you know that's that's a nice um you know self limiting goal. So I can start off with Kane if you want. Go ahead, Kane or House of Mystery, because I always felt that like the entry should have been House of Secrets and House of Mystery, and they could have been actually facing one another in a comic, but. I don't think who's who, you know, knew what it was doing at first. So <laughs> starting who's who with Abel and then eventually you need to get back to Kane. That's fine. This can be House of Mystery. Mine will be House of Mystery. Is yours? The title of this series is The Mark of Kane. And I have a little format where I do a title, a synopsis, the creative team, and then the secret behind the title, which we can either do or I can reveal at the end. But The Mark of Kane, someone has killed Abel and it wasn't Kane. Now, since Abel can only come back to life if Cain was his killer, Cain cannot let that stand. 
So all clues point to the killer being one of the unfortunate souls from the stories they tell each other in their two houses. So one of the characters from those stories escaped and killed Abel. Now, this is a young Cain, and he is traveling across the world and even other realities into all the places their stories come from, searching for his brother's killer so he can make things right. Now, the further he goes, the more he encounters signs and servants of one organization calling itself the Monarch Society. That's a concept, which I like. Yeah, it gives them a little more motive a little more motive than just being a narrator in other you know, in other stories. Well, I figured that's part of it. Like you take Kane from the role of just narrating stories to now he's been dragged into one by one of his own stories. And I may, as you have will see, have read too many Grant Morrison comics as this goes on. Well, I think <laughs> We're both of the same stripe on that one. <laughs> and who do you have working on this? I have Garth Ennis as the writer because I see Kane is like traveling around the world. On one level, it's him sort of being a badass pursuing a killer. But on the other hand, there's got to be a lot of weird stuff in there. And do you also call artists on these things? Yes. Or? Yeah, I, I chose Nicola Scott to draw this. Because she can do very realistic looking stuff, but she's also done series like Black Magic where she's shown she can do the creepier side of things. And since I'm making a wish list here, I also have one page strips in this book by Sergio Aragonis. Uh, like in the old days, yes. that's nice. And then what's the secret behind the title? I, I Are, are we going to just like tease it out one book at a time and sort of figure at the end what's really happening does, does that work i could do it that way if i tell you right here it does give away what's going to be revealed several entries later then let's let's keep it to the end all right and at the end you can all wrap this up in <laughs> in a big cobweb yeah that's what it will be yeah balled up <laughs> okay, in the corner okay. yeah <laughs> as for me well it'd be silly for me not to repeat what i wanted to do with house of secrets back in episode one which is to bring back the horror anthology, give a lot of work to indie writer artists who normally wouldn't get a paycheck from DC, and each issue would include a mystery that isn't necessarily horror, uh, but would take place in the mainstream DC universe instead. If My House of Secrets also exists, if both books exist, it reveals a character's secret. House of Mystery uh, is more about asking a question and setting up maybe a future reveal. So like in House of Secrets, you get answers. In House of Mystery, you get questions. So... For example, you might do like these, uh, like a two or three pager to highlight a question like, you know, have you ever wondered how Batman got everything into the Batcave? <sighs> and then the story would just speculate, never gave us straight answers, like questions you don't want answered, really. Or it could be used to introduce elements that will pay off in someone else's main series or in an annual crossover event, like the equivalent of Rip Hunter's chalkboard. For a while there, like in 52 oh, yeah, and, and Booster Gold. Yeah. So you had like clues as to what would happen in DCU. So it would work kind of in that way. Say we had this back during Armageddon 2001. You might have had a story about Monarch's true identity. And then, of course, you never know the answer. You know, it would just set up the miniseries. But for the most part, this would still be a horror story anthology uh, with final twists that leave the situations ambiguous and mysterious. Because that's the, the kind of mystery we're going for. Hosted by Kane, just as it was back then. I'll poach your Sergio Aragonis idea if I can. So. Oh, yeah. The more Sergio, the better. <laughs> Next up is a bizarre one because it's not part of the DC Universe per se, but we have to cover it. It's Camelot 3000. For me, it's just called Camelot. It's a big team book. And as you'll see, my line has books that take place in different times and on different Earths. So I kept the multiverse. And Camelot exists or is accessible 
from all of them. So same basic concept with King Arthur having slept a while and now threats are such that he's awakened as per the prophecy. Instead of resurrecting the Knights of Yore, he recruits a new roundtable of superheroes. Many of them have their own books, which are yet to be presented, so I'll, you know, I'll keep those a mystery, and who are able to get together despite coming from different dimensions to take care of big multiversal threats or help each other out across the, you know, the natural boundaries of the multiverse. Among the members unique to this book are the most definitely Welsh King Arthur, I think. I have a Welsh friend who is very vocal about how the Arthurian legend has been co-opted from the Welsh and turned into this this sort of idyllic English thing. So he's very angry about it, usually. So uh, in deference to him, I want to find out what those real roots are and have it a Welsh King Arthur, whatever that means, whatever the true legend was, if we can say true legend as a sort of... Sure, <laughs> and in comics term. you can. You can choose it. For the others, like the other ones that are unique to the book, I've decided none of them should have had entries in the original Who's Who, because all those people are going to get books eventually if I keep this you know, this uh, podcast going. <laughs> so uh, there's Wildfire from Earth X, so the original Wildfire. There's the Riddler of Earth 3. And there's Seagrin of the Fourth World. He's uh, like an Aquaman dude that died in New Gods number four and is somehow my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> there are those plus characters, you know, like six or seven other characters that we'll meet through their own solo series later. So Shades of Grant Morrison's JLA and Multiversity, uh, if you will, though I'm not necessarily tagging him as a writer for this. I think he's he's done those stories already, but that's the basic groove. So Camelot 3000 is my Justice League, if you will. It's my big superhero team book where the different solo stars come together. What did you have in mind for this? Well, this was uh, easy to work with because I've never read an issue of Camelot 3000. So I've just sort of heard things over the years. So I just went blank slate on this. The book is just going to be called Camelot 3000. I love the Legion of Superheroes. I love things that take place in far off you know, periods of time. So I didn't mess with the title at all. So in this book, something awakens a new incarnation of Guinevere and gives her visions of the knights she must gather and the enemy they must oppose. The knights attempt to prevent the rise of someone that in Guinevere's dreams is called the Hollow King. And in their first story, they seek Excalibur, and Guinevere proves able to wield it, even though the old sexist enchantment specifies a king because dun 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 she is pregnant and <gasps> so that still it still keeps that like that's part it's written into the story well like the enchantment is still pretty sexist you know because uh, you probably have a boy and she discovers her condition and also um you know this makes her into what i feel this creative team will be able to make some some good soup out of is the expectant mother protagonist wielding a sword, trying to stop the rise of an evil king. You know, Guinevere is collecting these other people who are reincarnations of the Knights of the Round Table. She has Excalibur. She has an enemy. And then I hand that off to the creative team, which is writer Mark Wade, who I just haven't seen do anything in a while. And I feel could work with a concept like this where it's kind of off on its own. And instead of playing with tons of pre-established DC continuity, he's got an open sandbox. And the artist would be Colleen Duran, who I just feel would do an amazing job with a book that's set in the future, but also has medieval overtones 
and lets her draw a lot of very pretty people. Are the Legionnaires going to mix up in this, or we're going to find out? That's one of the things people are very upset about, is this is a completely different timeline, and there is absolutely no sign of their (sighs) Legion. We're going to get to that, though, because there's characters in here that make that necessary to touch on. Yes, there are three characters from the Legion books in this somewhere. Uh, Next up is Captain Adam. So this is our first superhero property, finally. What do you do with them? Okay, so here's where I start to tip my hand a little bit. The title of this book is Nathaniel Adam, Wave Rider. And you had Monarch earlier. Okay, I'm the one that mentioned Armageddon 2001 Yeah, I was going to say that we've already both mentioned Monarch, and um, (laughs) there's certain terms that just are in here, and again, it fits into my concept of they're almost in here to goad the audience on purpose, but they do also fit on a conceptual level otherwise. So we keep the origin of Nathaniel Adam, which the original silly origin of he is knocked out on a missile that's about to launch, you know, left trapped in an experimental rocket that then explodes. Like he drops his screwdriver or whatever, and somehow (laughs) he cannot, you know, and it launches, blows up. And in the original storyline, the special metals in the rocket create Captain Adam. Well, there's an extra object that is forced onto Adam's person before the incident happens. He could have escaped the rocket, but someone showed up and dropped a small spherical object on his chest that pinned him to the ground. And so that's when that that person just walks out of the rocket and leaves. And so that's why he can't leave. And that extra element changes the nature of the accident and creates something called the time wave, which is actually the name of this sub imprint. So using the fact that Captain Adam previously in the DC incarnation would absorb so much energy before he would jump forward in time, I'm keeping that concept intact in that he is the center of an event that occurs throughout all of time and sets him adrift in time. You know, he also, because of the item that was left on his chest, has the atomic symbol burned into his chest, which we will get to. He first appears 100,000 years in the future, which is going to tie into some of these other entries later on. He basically is set adrift by this stranger that changed the nature of his accident to set something off and change what happened to him on purpose. And now his task is to find his way back through the timeline to prevent that from happening. I don't know if I should even reveal the, the, well, the object that was put on his body, just so we know, had a tiny trace amount of white dwarf star matter on it. So that keeps the link to something with the word Adam in it and is the reason why that symbol was burned into his chest when he came out the other side. So whoever did this knew something about the DC universe and where some of the special symbolic materials were. I've got my suspect in mind, but I'll, I'll, stay, I'll wait for the end to see if I'm, I'm right. right. So, so in light of the fact that this is like the central character of this big sort of overwrought concept designed to fail, and it dips heavily into continuity, the writer is Jeff Johns. He's going to have his way with all of these symbolic pieces of the DC universe and jumping from era to era, but redefining them as he goes. And the artist... You know, I'm on the Fire and Water Podcast Network, but also I just really want to see Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise be his name. Praise be his name. Draw all these different time periods and all these different takes on various characters. And he can draw anything. So I want a book where he's allowed to do that. Nice. It's your cornerstone book. So 
you know, having a strong artist on there makes sense. You get the name writer that for one reason or another is going to bring people's attention, good or bad. And then you get him to uh, make it look amazing. One of the best craftsmen in the in the form. I, I'm, I'm going very much more traditional uh, than you are on this. <laughs> uh, Captain Adam is the hero of Earth 4. So he's a member of the round table. And I'm treating Captain Adam's Earth the way it was done in Multiversity Pax Americana, uh, where he's the only superpowered hero, and all the others are like street-level costume vigilantes. So this book has a lot of Watchmen in it, I guess, even if Captain Adam is nowhere near as powerful as Dr. Manhattan. And it gives the writer the ability to, to divert the course of history, uh, because it is not our Earth. But... I really still like that setup from the post-crisis Captain Adam series. So I want some of that, uh, you know, I want General Eiling sending Captain Adam on missions. He's a man out of time. Quantum jumped decades ahead. Now it's even more years since we're starting that series now. Uh, and he keeps that look, you know, the silver guy with the spray-painted boots and logo. Now, I did say he was the only superpowered hero because his existence has caused an arms race with other countries trying to create their own super soldier. And, uh, you know, maybe even the states are probably trying to recreate it, replicate it. So if you want major force, you can have them with various experiments. So there's a growing population of superhumans, and they all work for states or terrorist groups. Uh, so this is an action book that takes place in sort of government, black ops, espionage, military level kind of stuff. So get a John Ostrander type to do it kind of thing. But it's like he's this big, big, powerful hero and yet kind of works secretly. And, you know, so that's going to kind of be the, like the paradox of the series. Oh, yeah. The greatest hero that, you know, no one's ever known kind of right. thing. Right. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I, I really like that. And I'm a huge fan of of the post-crisis cap. This was one of the biggest sacrifices for me was not to just – Bring that team back, bring that concept back, and let it go. You know, like, yeah. I, I I love that series. And that's what the traditional approach can give you is that just let's go back to the roots. You went more traditional in a way with the the, the screwdriver of fate, right? Because one <laughs> of my favorite issues of that post crisis series was the one where they established that his Charlton history was a fake a cover, cover story. story. I yeah. love that. Uh. So next up is Captain Carrot. So for me, this was the hero of Earthsea and a member of the Round Table. Let's make sure that even though this is a book that is going to be very cartoony, when he shows up in Camelot, he's still cartoony. Like, I didn't like that in Multiversity where Captain Carrot shows up and he's sort of this realistic-looking bunny. Yeah, I took it because that's all we could get and it was more Captain Carrot, but I'm with you. It's um, Roger Rabbit. So it's got to look like a cartoon when he's with the normal heroes. And uh, But in his own book, uh, no surprise, it's a funny animal book in the same style as Captain Carrot and his amazing zoo crew. Scott Shaw kind of art, a fun writer who can do comedy. Like uh, I like Jeff Parker and Fred Van Lance Marvel Adventures stuff. I mention it often. I think that's the kind of comedy that really works for all ages, not just for little kids. I'm making it a Superman spoof in a line that doesn't include Superman, I realize. But with the, the Zucru gang are there as supporting characters, not as superheroes. So you have Felina is the Lois Lane. Peter Porkchops is the Jimmy Olsen. Oh, yeah. uh, Rova Barkett is the Lana Lang or maybe the Cat Grant. I'm So that's what I'm trying to do with him. It's like, I don't have a Superman book. This is it, but it's also kind of a spoof, kind of a tribute, kind of a... 
uh, funny animal version of it in a way that I don't really that Zucru wasn't. Well, he is the Superman of the Captain Carrot series because he had like more golden age Superman power. You know, he had like a similar job and secret identity. And But I'm curious as to what the time wave has done to Captain Carrot in your world. Well, I said that Captain Adam was a dear sacrifice. This was even more dear because it bears absolutely no... Uh, resemblance to the original concept at all. I have the showcase collection of the Zoo Crew a couple rooms away. I'm a gigantic fan of Captain Carrot, but this has nothing to do with that incarnation. The time wave really hit these guys hard. So I will just say the title is the same, though. Captain Carrot and his amazing Zoo Crew. And I'm just going to read the synopsis as I have it written because it's it's very different. So Raji Rabani and his team watch over the time stream's most amazing zoo. The time wave has unleashed ripples that could remove certain key animals from various timelines before their time. Raj's crew brings those creatures to the Vanishing Park, which is the name of their zoo, a private preserve for endangered creatures, ostensibly. Also, the crew soon discovers that it's not just the time wave that's out to erase these creatures, but there's a more mysterious team calling themselves the Butterfly Hunters, exploiting the ripples seizing prey in all the chronal confusion. You know, Raji obviously gets the nickname of Captain Carrot from the rest of his team on the crew who are loosely based on the members of the zoo crew, as you had. But none of these people have superpowers except for the fact that they run a zoo that is outside of time at the Vanishing Park. And none of them are animals. No, these are all humans that are running a zoo. So it's like a workplace kind of comedy but also they're involved with this mission to save certain animals that, you know, for some reason would be taken out before their time, like a Sound of Thunder kind of thing. Like, you know, that's that's at least what it looks like on the surface is they're trying to prevent a butterfly effect, like, you know, stepping on the butterfly and the Sound of Thunder short story created a different future when the person came back. You know, that's what it looks like on the surface of things here. For my writer and artist, I have Stuart Moore and June Brigman, who are currently doing the book Captain Ginger from Ahoy, which I completely adore. And I would want them on a book that would you know, handle more adventures centering around animals, even if the main cast of characters are not ascended animals like they are in Captain Ginger. It's funny that you mentioned June Brigman because I did use her as well. Nice. Maybe it sounds like an odd choice for people, but she did do art in this Who's Who issue, and that's basically why I I did it. All right, what about Captain Comet? Just another captain. The book is called Trail of the Comet. Now, the synopsis is pretty short for this one. Well, actually, it's not. There's all these other bullet points. Oh, my goodness. So Comet is displaced from his time by the arrival of Captain Adam in the far future. So Captain Comet in... This who's who incarnation is known as a mutant born a hundred thousand years before his time. Well, in this, he's in a time a hundred thousand years before his time because that's where he's from. So Captain Adam's first stop when the time wave hits him is a destination a hundred thousand years, and he essentially displaces this one superpowered mutant to the past, but not necessarily the past that Captain Adam is from. He is displaced to 1951. And he has the look of an African-American person. So Captain Comet must now try to save the future by surviving the past. And very soon after his arrival, there is this 
pretty openly racist organization that um, Comet comes across called the Monarch Society that's looking to make sure he doesn't come out of this looking like a hero. Comet is also contacted by a rival group to the society calling themselves the Butterfly Effect. They're on Comet's side, and they seem to know what his secret is. They seem to know that he's not really from around here. So this is someone trying to be a hero in 1951 who is an African-American person and not interested in hiding it. But there's this group that is trying to make sure he ends up looking like a threat and like a villain instead of a hero. We're so, quite close on this. So, okay, okay, go ahead. <laughs> okay. So the writer is Kwanzaa Osafejo. The artist is Jamal Yassim Eigel. So the team from Black is going to write this and draw this because why would I pick anyone else right now to handle this subject matter? Because I'm just the editor-in-chief. I'm coming up with this heavy-handed kind of half-cocked concept, but I'm handing him to teams that I think will make something good out of it. I did similar things in a way. He's the hero of Earth 2 in my case, and so he can be a member of the roundtable. Uh, I've basically decided that Captain Comet would not be like the first hero of the Silver Age, but rather the last of the Golden Age, uh, which is why he's on Earth 2. The war has ended. Uh, we've entered the 1950s, all the old heroes have retired, and now there's a new breed of hero just getting its start, the science hero, the, the mutant born of the atomic age. So Comet knows all about the JSA, you know, but he's got his own way. Well, he has, he's got to find one. He's got to find a new way to, to operate in this new world that they're living in. Uh, so you've got, you know, McCarthyism in full swing. Uh, it's a world where people don't trust anyone different, which is very similar to what you're doing. And I also heighten the allegory and the tension by making Captain Comet African-American, but Aha. of this era, of this era. Uh, so it, it's a bit Buck Rogers, it's a bit X-Men, it's a bit Martian Man under American Secrets. Uh, it borrows from 50s B-movie tropes, if I can. I'm totally game to have old JSA villains, now working more behind the scenes, show up to give him trouble. I think like people like Brainwave and The Shade are perfectly good foils for this character. But it is a sort of, in a way, a retro superhero book, a superhero space cadet kind of book. But it's got all of that racial division, current events kind of thrown into it. I love it. I, I just wonder what it is about this character that drew us both to those themes. Like I, I don't know. One of the things is there isn't a whole lot of, of diversity in the who's who issue. So, you know, I've done this from the beginning. I I'll, like try to reimagine some of the characters. What if they had been from different, you know, different ethnicities? What if these were female heroes instead and how that would change the, dyma the dynamic? And I think it's the 50s, the 50s and 60s as a setting kind of draws those, you know, civil, uh, you know, uh, civil rights and pre-civil rights movement. I think that's probably where our minds both went. Yeah, it's the veneer of the you know the sock hop and early rock and roll and whatever and you know the golly gee veneer but everything that lied that lay beneath it there's still that going on and i think putting a hero in there you know will play on those themes the next captain on our list is captain compass a very different character uh, for me actual title mystery cruise is what it's called mark compass isn't he isn't a captain so I, I've, you know, I've gotten rid of that captain on there. He isn't a captain. He's just an officer and a house detective on a cruise ship. So imagine a blend of The Love Boat and Murder, She Wrote. So there's a strong supporting cast of shipboard personnel. They all have continuing stories and secrets of their own. And each trip 
introduces new characters, like a new mystery, crimes committed on board or at exotic stops that make Compass sort of a world-sailing Sherlock Holmes. So you get a writer like Stephen T. Siegel, who was more than capable of writing short mystery arcs in Sandman Mystery Theater. Uh, for this one, the art style, I imagine, more as um, human targets Javier Pulido or something. You know, that, that kind of... I think it's basically oh, yeah. adult crime noir, even though it kind of sounds silly with that title. Maybe it's a working title. <laughs> so this is more like some of the things that Vertigo has done, you know, the 100 Bullets or the or Human Target, or uh, it's in that style. Oh, I believe me, I think with the right logo work, Mystery Cruise would be a great title to, to make it jump out. Like, I think it's just a matter of how that looks on the cover. Thanks for the vote of confidence. <laughs> yeah, I, I like it, but and I think, you know, Captain Compass, again, like you said, was kind of a sketch of a character and a tiny who's who entry. So we did similar things. I called a book, and again, uh, my brain is a bit heavy with cheese content. So I went with follow the compass, which you thought mystery cruise was bad. You can get out of the way and check out, follow the compass. I have him as an ex ship captain who is now a private eyes. I could not reconcile how he was both at the same time. I kind of want to read these old stories to find out how they even tried to pretend that fit together. So he's an ex captain who is now a private eye and he ends up on the trail of assassins working for something that he finds out is called the monarch society because all of this is tied together and i'm going to give away a little bit of the secret here uh compass is being led astray by the society as in many possible timelines it's his detective skills that end up foiling their plans so they are stringing him along and the reader is going to know that but he is not so the series is going to be about can mark compass realize what's being done to him before he's led too far astray where he cannot fulfill his, you know, one timeline in which he helps bring these people down. And, you know, given that he's going to be following a trail of murders and it's going to be kind of as, as you did with him as well, sort of a crime noir series. I put Greg Rucka and Steve Epting on this book. Uh, I just think they're a great team for this kind of genre. And I love Steve Epting's work. I, I can't, I don't think he gets enough projects or he doesn't do enough projects. So I want to see him draw this comic. We're on the same page in terms of tone, keeping the mystery. I can only imagine some other guests doing like Captain Compass and it's going to be you know, like superhero with a compass on his chest or something. Yeah. Or you go a Captain Boomerang route somehow with Captain Compass. Yeah. I, I, believe me, I, I don't even know how if that would ever end to like trying to make sense of that. <laughs> <laughs> he shares a page of the who's who with another captain, Captain Fear. So an another seagoing captain. What did you do with Captain Fear? Actually, we end up seagoing a couple of times with my my list here. And Captain Fear's book is called Terrible Freedom, The Tragic Career of Captain Fear. So it's a big, long title. I have a few bullet points here. I, I left this one a little more open. So Captain Fear lost his family. This is from the who's who entry. Then he lost his own crew of slaves that he helped free. So in a way, that makes him, in my mind, a proto-loser, like this concept that we'll visit again where DC has a book called The Losers. So he's, you know, historically the first loser. As what he thinks is a, you know, turn of good luck, he ends up meeting a woman who calls herself the Sea Angel. That's her, her name. She's like a female pirate captain calling herself the Sea Angel. You know, she had been captured. He frees her from a slave ship connected to the slavers that he's seeking revenge upon. Angel 
proves indispensable in his quest for revenge, leading him closer and closer to his ultimate target. Again, I'll just tip a little bit of the secret here. Uh, Angel needs fear to get his revenge, as at least one of the people he wants to kill would be key in forming the opposition to the monarch society that is known as the butterfly effect over in Captain Comet's book in the future. And there's also the fact that Sea Angel is another name for the shellless sea butterfly ocean slug. So I'm keeping that whole butterfly monarch beat you over the head with it symbolism even in this character's name. So it is tireless. <laughs> and the writer is Tom King. I have a lot of issues with some of the stuff he writes, but he does something very well, which is the troubled male character who pairs with a strong female character to help him through trauma. So he's, for me, the perfect writer for this book. And just because it's a pirate book and, you know, Captain Adam has, as you pointed out, some tenuous Watchmen connection, I'm putting Dave Gibbons on the art because he did the Black Sails story in The Watchmen, and I want to see him draw more pirate stuff. Right. Okay. Mine is a a straight up horror book set on the high seas. Captain Fear, or maybe I want to call it Captain Fear, you know, like the apostrophe in there. He's a ghost. So his ship comes out of nowhere, could strike at any time. And in fact, this is really an anthology series where each arc features a different time period or context, probably with a different artist, anything from a Roman galley to well, spaceships. So we get invested in new characters each time and their own plots. There's always something that happens that draws the ghostly pirate ship to them with varying results. Is it helpful? Is it, you know, antagonistic? Is it like a vengeance incarnate? Depends. And in every issue, there's still some element of fear's original story uh, uncovered by a historian or told as a tall tale. The more we learn, the more we understand just what's going on or, you know, what caused this. But no narrator is, would be trustworthy. So uh, it's like a big grand myth that keeps contradicting itself. And there, there's no way to reconcile, it seems, how this ghost ship can also be in the past. You know, how can Captain Fear die? Like, I have him, I, essentially, I would have him die with his crew. Like, those stories is that he keeps going, but actually he's, it's just a ghost. It's just a ghost manifestation. He has unfinished business. Yeah, he does. Most ghosts, yeah. And somehow he's finishing everybody else's business before his own is, is what it seems to, to be happening. But this is kind of, if I'm going to have a house of mystery, then I can have these sort of anthology horror books. But this one is more, it's more action-y. And it takes a little bit of, uh, you know, what um, Starman did with Black Pirate, you know, where there there is a ghost element. So I stole that from that. Oh yes! Oh my God! I completely forgot about that until just now. But that is uh, that's uh, this was jumping right to the head of my list as you kept describing it, and like I think that buried memory is partially why. But I also just love this concept. This is great. So we can have Walt Simonson do like an arc but i i really think that i mean he'd be good for any time period as he's shown in the past you know uh he can do spaceships as well as you know galleons or but i really do think that each arc would have its own art style and be its own thing and have its own mood okay captain marvel here's the big one here's here's the the headliner of the who's who issue captain marvel and uh, of course i have him as the hero of earth s a member of the round table so this is a big This is a big team when you think about it. You know, the power levels are pretty high. I'll respect Marvel's trademark and have him star in a book called Shazam, or maybe Power of Shazam. I've always liked that, the sound of that. 
but I won't change his name from Captain Marvel. Sorry. I, I, to me, that this has always been a sticking point. Calling him Shazam is ridiculous to me. It's the name of the wizard. Indulge my retroness here. We don't have to look for my book very far because it exists. You know, Jeff Parker and Doc Shaner did a Shazam two-part in Convergence, in those, oh, in yeah. those Convergence comics. And it looked and felt amazing. And I, I don't know how that can exist. And at the same time, DC keeps continu- you know, keeps putting out angsty, edgy Shazam family comics. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Every, <laughs> every Shazam book that's come out in the past 20 years that hasn't been in continuity has gotten it right. Whether it's the DC Kids book, uh, Billy Batson and whatever, or whether it's the, you know, Jeff Smith's Monster Society hardcover or, or this, or the Convergence, or the, there was also a Multiversity story, right? Yeah. They're all doing yeah. it better than the, the crappy Trials of Shazam era. Uh, Shazam books that are more in love with Black Adam than any other character in the Marvel family. So <laughs> screw that. So they're, they're, I mean, this book already exists. It's right there. It was the best of the Convergence lot easily. Just loads of fun, imaginative foes, beautiful art. Just get those guys to repeat it on, on a monthly basis. It's an editorial no-brainer for me. So I'm uh, <laughs> just getting that out there because when I read those books, I was like, why don't I have a dose of this Captain Marvel all the time? And as magic editor, I'm making it happen. Well, that's fantastic. And that's, I I love pure Captain Marvel. Uh, I love Talkie Tawny. I love Mr. Mind, all of it. But that book would simply be too good for the time wave. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> uh, you want to talk about like all the like, you know, attempts to not do that. Captain Marvel have always gone dark and gone a certain way. Well, this is what I do with, and I, I kind of have to cheat at this entry. So you can tell me when I should go here because Captain Marvel and Captain Marvel Jr. Books are both handled at the same time here. That's Perfectly fine. I, I just ignored the the copyright thing, and that kind of figures into part of the the concept here. Uh, you know, the big showdown between DC and Fawcett, and the name Captain Marvel, and and um, you know later on with Marvel and DC. You know, that kind of karmic payback for the lawsuit and all, all that whole mess sort of plays into the concept here. I just kept the books called Captain Marvel. And Captain Marvel Jr. And let the lawyers come because this line is going away soon anyway. So Billy Batson was brought to the wizard by a shadowy stranger. We know that. He followed this shadowy person to the wizard down to the subway station and all that. That all still happens. Of course, my shadowy stranger is the person behind the time wave. We'll just get that out of the way. That's going to be obvious to anyone reading this book. And so the creation of Captain Marvel is directly caused by this person. What we have is Captain Marvel bonding himself to Billy Batson. And on the surface of it, you have this, you know, homeless boy who's suddenly able to turn into an adult superhero and go out and have a great time. And he's incredibly powerful. The other book is Captain Marvel Jr. And it has a subtitle, The Adventures of Captain Marvel, when he was a boy. Oh. And it takes place in a completely different reality with an utterly different tone of art and writing. It is like a 1940s, 1950s comic, probably without the uh, abundance of racism and sexism in it. But maybe some you know, little meta jokes about that in the book. 
the readers left to at first wonder, why do we have this book called Captain Marvel when he was a boy, when Captain Marvel is this person Billy Batson can turn into? Where is this all coming from? So Captain Marvel was brought out of the fictional reality he existed in in the Captain Marvel Jr. series and bonded to Billy Batson and made real by force by the wizard that this was all set in motion by our shadowy stranger. So this book is about, on some level at first, this boy who can turn into a powerful adult and how does he handle that? And what are the events of his past that drives him? And what traumas is he working through? Billy Batson, rather. And then eventually this voice starts to uh, change in the Captain Marvel Jr. book. That voice is Talkie Tawny, who starts changing and starts trying to warn Captain Marvel Jr. about what is happening to him somewhere else. And the Tawny voice appears in both books after a while because when Captain Marvel daydreams, he thinks of Talkie Tawny and he can't figure out why he's thinking of this talking tiger character who's trying to ask him where he went, why did he leave, you know, why has he lost touch with himself, what is he doing? So Tawny is the character that starts knitting both these books together. Eventually, there's a crossover in which Captain Marvel Jr. does come to this Earth and there is a showdown. And Tawny sacrifices himself to keep Captain Marvel Jr. here because as soon as he comes over, the forces start trying to pull him back to his reality. He is there's there's no anchor for him here. So Tawny provides that anchor by sacrificing himself. So, like I said, all the other treatments of Captain Marvel always go way too dark. We're here. Um <laughs> Eventually, also, I'm going to give away the, the end of this series. Junior also sacrifices himself in order to reveal the truth to his adult, you know, bonded to the real world version. And that is that he himself is the wizard. And this was all done so that Captain Marvel could remain in this world because the wizard was this Captain Marvel further down the line who is slowly being erased, even though he had the anchor of Billy Batson. So he needed to refresh that event to keep himself from being dragged back to where he came from. And why is he so eager to remain in the real world? It's because the adult Captain Marvel knows what happened to Captain Marvel. He knows that metafictionally they were sued out of existence by an incredibly petty and baseless lawsuit. It all came crashing down. And then in the end, no one ever got them right again. Like it was just a series of copies of copies and failures after that. And it never felt right again. So he was running from that and hiding in the real world once someone provided him an out. Wow. But in the end, he <laughs> does go back after Captain Marvel Jr. shows him the truth. He says, I'm not going to be a pawn. Someone is using me as bait and I refuse to be used as a pawn anymore. That's been my entire history for too long. And he severs his connection to Billy. They just sort of shake hands and break it. They appear at the same time and walk away from each other, and Captain Marvel fades away, and the series is over. So I have one writer for both books. I have Jeff Lemire, who I figure can handle both of these things with equal skill. And I have two artists. I have, and you mentioned the power of Shazam. I have Jerry Ordway on the Captain Marvel book because, of course, I do. Like the, the power of Shazam was a huge favorite of mine, even though it wasn't quite it was as close as I think DC has gotten to good Captain Marvel in a long, yes. long time. Yes. So Jerry's drawing that book. And I've got Colleen Coover 
drawing uh, the Captain Marvel Jr. book, who um, is doing a book I absolutely love called Bandette with Paul Tobin. Sure. I want more Colin Coover, and you know, there's so many artists I could have picked that people would just put on the Captain Marvel Jr. book who would do a pastiche 50s look to it. But I just want a Colleen Coover book set in a classic Fawcett universe, and I want to see what she would do with it. That works for me. <laughs> okay. So that, that was a long the bunch of rambling, self-destroying nonsense, so I'm – I will surrender. <laughs> well, I mean, my Captain Marvel Jr. is kind of boring in comparison. You know, he's the headliner of what a, an extra-sized book called Wiz Comics. I'm bringing that back. Jewish boy Freddie Freeman gets his powers from Captain Marvel in the first issue, and then he's on his own, just like in the Golden Age. And this is on Earth S. It's the same kind of light and fun superhero action as, uh, you know, the, the Big Red Sheets' own book. But it's also an anthology book. Junior headlines much of like he did in Master Comics. I just didn't want to bring that title back. <laughs> yeah. And his main enemy is Captain Nazi, just like in the 40s. But now it's neo-Nazism uh, rising just on Earth-S, just like it did here. Here's where I put June Brigman, because I like her art on this entry of Who's Who, the Captain Marvel Jr. entry. And oh, I think yeah. she'd be a fine choice to draw the strip. Now, Wiz then presents other stories of Earth-S heroes like the lieutenant's marvel uncle marvel mary marvel hoppy the marvel bunny who is actually on earth sea and is captain carrot's rival uh bullet man and bullet girl even mr <laughs> Takitani gets stri- so you would get you know a number of stories in each book it depends on the size of it but at least uh, three i love how you're bringing so many anthologies back into this because for me that's a personal favorite kind of publication that just doesn't exist anymore and plus hoppy as captain carrot's rival I am, like, first in line. I love that. It also ties into Earthsea. And so I'm doing a lot of – because Camelot is such a is such a multiversal book, it brings a multiversal approach to the line. And I think that's where my mind went, where, okay, how can I tie back in, tie back out uh, of all of these realities and still make them feel like a whole? I mean, there's no real difference between being on Earth-S and being, like, this guy's in Gotham City and this guy's in Metropolis. It's all, like, little micro-worlds anyway. Oh, especially in the beginning. Like, uh, you know, the Batman that appeared in his own book was completely different than the one that might have appeared in World's Finest. They were—continuity came later. There is a whole lot of continuity because everything ties in together, but I am making these micro-worlds. It doesn't matter if it's Fawcett City or if it's Earth-S— I think, you know, those books work the same, and I created conduits between them. One of these books that doesn't really tie into anything is Captain Storm. So, you mentioned The Losers earlier. I'm calling this one The Loser. I wanted to get rid of some of the, these captains. Uh, so This one's just called The Loser, as a homage to, to Storm being the leader of The Losers. And he's a military jinx. Uh, he's not a captain from the off. But he might get promoted out of a unit because they want to get rid of him. And then he gets handed off to one unit, another service, another service, you know, one after another. It's basically our entry into different parts of World War II and different types of war stories and so on. So he might get promoted, you know, uh, like fail upwards <laughs> toward the uh-huh. captain. The idea is that, you know, he's a jinx in the way like, William Storm consistently is the, like the last surviving member of whatever unit he's in. Or he's always part of failing missions. It's all suicide missions. It's all heart-wrenching death. And uh, he's getting more and more worn down. He loses a leg. He loses an eye. He's also losing the will to go on. It's a dark, dark, dark war book 
but with a twisted sense of humor as well. You, you mentioned Captain Fear as a loser, so does that tie in? I was just going to say, you mentioned him as a military jinx, and I was trying to work in, like, so he might be something of a sad sack, you know? Oh, okay. But, uh, <laughs> if Shag were here. Yeah, I was just saying, like, right there, you know, like, I think we have one subscriber. But um, my book is going to have a title called Eye of the Storm. Again, I addicted to these bad pun titles with an exclamation point at the end. And part of, if you look at Captain Storm's Who's Who entry, he spent time as an amnesiac pirate, even with a wooden leg, you know, and, and missing an eye. So there's my eye of the storm, bad joke right in the title. But the thing is, Captain Storm didn't die at the end of World War II. He was displaced by the time wave back to the golden age of piracy. He is briefly taken prisoner on a pirate ship. He's not going to cross over with Captain Fear. Uh, this went in a different direction. Originally, I thought that was going to happen. As soon as he takes over as captain, the ship is destroyed in a storm because he is the loser. And the wreckage ends up on the shores of Dinosaur Island. Storm and his remaining crew discover they are not alone. The crew of a mysterious ship called the Monarch are also here. The crew from the Monarch is trying to collect the eggs of a creature on the island that is not native to this planet. It's not a dinosaur. These two crews cross paths. And Storm's crew obviously uh, ends up wanting to stop the Monarch's crew for various reasons. So what I realized when I was creating this book was I created the perfect book for Walt Simonson to do all the chores on. <laughs> it's got pirates. It's got dinosaurs. It's got alien artifacts because this creature didn't just show up on its own. Something brought it here. So there's crash spaceships. There's all kinds of stuff that doesn't belong on Dinosaur Island. And Monarch seems to be here or the Monarch ship seems to be here to clean up all of that stuff and use for their own purposes. <clears throat> you know, Captain Storm's crew, what's left of it, is trying to maybe collect some of this same material to figure out how to use it to get off Dinosaur Island. This sort of ties into the meta concept, but it's off literally on its own island back in the past. And Walt Simonson is writing and drawing this and just doing whatever the heck he wants with it. I'm keeping all my Dinosaur Island ideas for like two episodes <laughs> to go. Well, yeah, I'm not going to be there. So I had to yeah. take it now. You know? Yeah, the war that I forgot. Another, I mean, this issue of Who's Who has a lot of these more or less like civilian heroes or adventurer heroes in a way, because now we're up to Cave Carson. And it feels like, you know, the young animal imprint already played this game and came up with Cave Carson has a cybernetic eye. It feels a lot like like somebody sat there and did the same work we just did. Let's look at a who's who entry and come up with something to do with this forgotten character. We I, Literally one of the forgotten heroes. So what's your idea for Cave Carson? Well, I didn't go too far from that. Um, uh, I loved what the young animal team did with cave Carson on both of their series. And I'm calling my title cave Carson and the cosmic key. And that's the title for the first storyline. So cave is very much unchanged. It's the same creative team from the young animal book. So that vibe and that look, you know, caves down there, it's probably not as dysfunctional as that setup because cave still has a team. He's fully funded. He's not at war with his own, company who stole all his secrets none of that he's back in action and he's down underground discovering things and he keeps finding things like fallen civilizations including things that seem to be ours but from the future 
Like there's things down there that shouldn't be down there. But before he can get too deep into that, he finds this object they end up calling the Cosmic Key. And as soon as he finds that, he is pursued by not the Monarch Society, but a group calling themselves the Followers of Arion, like spelled just like Arion, Lord of Atlantis. And of course, it's named after the Maculinia Arion, the large blue underground butterfly. So there is still a butterfly connection. These people are still related, but time's been shattered. So there's multiple versions of this group working together. So the followers of Arion are trying to get this cosmic key um, that will enable them to travel to some place they call the changing world. And that will give them part of the solution to what they're trying to put together for our shadowy stranger. So the book is about cave trying to keep this key out of the hands of the followers of Arion, and it also <laughs> is about what he found with the key, which is a comatose alien. This orange-skinned alien with antennae that's curled up in a ball in a suspended animation tube. Yeah, it's Chameleon yeah. Boy. Who could that be? <laughs> <laughs> Who could that be? It's it's Chameleon Boy. And uh, again, I'll jump to the end of this series. Um, you know, They solve that storyline. Cave and his team end up shaking the followers of Arion from chasing Chameleon Boy and the key by they end up trapped in Scartaris with a lot of the followers and the book becomes Cave Carson and the world of Scartaris after that. So we, <laughs> we, we end up in the lost land of the warlord at the end of this storyline. And then that is where the book goes from there. They're exploring Scartaris and trying to keep the followers from getting back to the world above. And I guess your series kind of dives into mine because for me, this is what I wrote down. One day, Cave Carson climbed into the mighty mole and vanished. Uh, no, what happened was he broke through to Scartaris, which is in this, my series, uh, only one of many pocket worlds inside the Earth's crust kept viable by magic or sometimes weird science because Scartaris is so well known as the inner earth. I think we would like my series would start there and you know, you'd spend a lot of time there at first, like the first story arcs would all be in this world and Cave Carson would be my continuity's warlord. But I imagine him with, imagine him in the armor, but he keeps the miner's hat with the flashlight. Oh God. That's the image I have. (laughs) But once he leaves and he discovers other pockets like, I think Gemworld would be such a pocket, for example. You know, you could p- take many different parts of the DC universe or new places and put them in here. Places ruled by lava men, or maybe you find a mad scientist supervillain who's run literally to ground down there, like Savannah. And if Savannah is in Earth connected to the other Earths somehow. Oh, yeah. And anyway, Cave Carson basically creates tunnels between these worlds, which leads to invasions, wars, interpocket politics, and it's all his fault. So he gets caught up in this inner earth Game of Thrones. And that's like maybe year two of the series is like, okay, now you've exploded this world and you've become a central figure in it, Cave Carson, uh, when you oh. are just trying to escape it, basically. He's delved too deeply. Mm-hmm. So, but we got, both got the Scartaris, which is uh, interesting. I love how you say him in the armor and the miner's hat, because the armor being 
a loincloth with a skull belt and furry boots. <laughs> yeah, that was maybe the you know there's one with uh, like that skull on the on the shoulder like the shoulder pad skull. Yeah, he at least had that. Yeah. like he had to keep that shoulder safe for some reason. Well, I mean that, that was a sword arm, wasn't it? Maybe it was. Yeah, I, yeah. yeah. Maybe you use it to like ram people. Yeah, I, I know armor is uh, <laughs> generous. I have almost all the issues of Warlord. I'm a huge fan. Uh. <laughs> Warlord Worlds, a fan podcast devoted to the comic creations of Mike Grell, including Warlord, John Sable, Star Slayer, Shaman's Tears, and Green Arrow. I'm Darren. And I'm Ruth. hope you'll join us as we discuss the stories, characters, and art in the many excellent comics from writer and artist Mike Grell. Warlord Worlds is available at podbean.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. Find us at warlordworlds.com. Now, next up is Celsius, and this was probably my hardest nut to crack. And I'm not sure I'm entirely happy with it still. <laughs> She's the Earth One member of the round table. I'm divorcing Celsius from the whole creepy Niles Calder thing. Otherwise, I think the first part of her story, being nursed back to health by holy men in a monastery and being taught to look inside her soul, that's a lot more interesting than suddenly discovering she's a mutant. So I lean into that. Her powers are unlocked by meditation, by reaching for the extremes of her nature, the heat of her passions and the cold of her calm intellect. You know, she can manifest a magic fire and magic ice. She can also heal herself by entering a trance-like state. Uh, she's a great martial artist. She's able to hit targets without looking because she's like at one with the universe. This is like a like a cosmic awareness kind of hero. Tragically, the monastery is attacked by a dark Kali cult and all but one monk is killed. He sticks around. He's like a mentor or helper figure on her mission to counter the evil cult, which has gone worldwide. And, of course, they've got plenty of dark plots. I'm probably bringing Ravan in. It's less Cobra and more like Ravan from um, uh, the, the Jihad in Suicide Squad, who was a Kali, oh, yeah. uh, a thuggy, an actual thuggy. So I'm yeah. kind of using that religion, and I've always been kind of interested in the Kali cult. So this is all going in here, and I, I, I imagine like the art is maybe very fantastic and like in my head i'm thinking of the like the covers for promethea or something like that but um you know for a while i was thinking is it like a rogan gosh kind of <laughs> is it <laughs> is that too weird is it you know is it is it shade the changing man kind of weird well you're playing with some spiritual themes so right. i think it totally works yeah yeah i think it's more like that weird gonzo stuff than it is like a jam Demetrius meditative contemplative philosophical book so it's got to be i mean it still has to work as she is the like basically the prime hero of earth 1 and she's the one gonna, that's going to be on the round table you know so i always felt like this was a difficult book for me to get a handle on yeah i i, I like how it you've redeemed that character very well and um i like putting her in a central position but i also do like the idea of a, her book having a weird look and then when she's over in the camelot book she's portrayed in a more traditionally super heroic thing mm. it would give like just this uh you know obvious switch of modes to her 
Yeah, I, I guess I can make that work. It happens a lot in the Justice League. You know, whatever's happening in the in their own books, it gets more traditional once they get into the JLA. For me, it's like the potential that wasn't really given time to explore of Buddy Baker being on the JLE and in a Grant Morrison book at the same right. time. You divorced Celsius uh, from calder and i could not do that uh I, I had to do quite the opposite and stick to it i i call my book the doom patrol we have pretty much her creepy inappropriate origin intact except what she finds out is when calder supposedly dies her immortality serum begins to go out of control this time wave unbeknownst to her sped up the process and altered it so she has this you know, proto version of the immortality serum. She has these emerging powers. Everything goes out of whack. Uh, they go so out of control. She destroys the monastery that she's been tucked away in. And now she doesn't have fire or ice powers. She has just a building explosive hot energy within her. It's all fire. It's all destruction. It's all explosive and it's building this whole time. And so she can get rid of it by creating smaller explosions that, that kind of takes the pressure off and in, in the present, but she can feel that's also shortening the fuse on the other end. So she's literally burning the candle at both ends just by using the power to keep herself from exploding right now. So she is on a quest to find her supposedly dead husband who she has a lot of problems with because you read her origin. She was probably underage when they met. Mm -hmm. She got secretly married. You, you know, the whole deal. And then she's tucked away while he goes and runs the entire Doom Patrol, um, which didn't happen in this timeline. But he went off and had a whole other career and then died. She's convinced faked his death. Meanwhile, he was secretly married the whole time to a probably underage girl and that he gave an experimental immortality serum and said, you sit here, I'll be back. So she's mad. She's trying not to explode and searching for her supposedly dead husband and gathering all these other people whose lives he messed up in the process to try to find him. Now, she does have a code name and it is not Celsius. I'm calling her Caldera, the human bomb. And Caldera has like, you know, this, this meaning of a crater left after a volcanic eruption. So we have a hollow you know, caused by an explosion here. There's a secret to what the monastery really was that makes it not quite so tragic that she destroyed the entire thing. I, I won't give that away right now, but um, they were, well, they were linked to this monarch society. So they weren't really the good guys. And it might not have been something that Chief was aware of when he left her there, depending on your interpretation of the Chief, which we will get to. So basically, this book is about her trying to find her husband who did all this to her to cure her before it's too late. That's the surface level of it. And the writer is going to be Gail Simone, who can do a book about a woman scorned, you know, trying to track down who did it to her better than her. And I'm putting Mike Norton on the art, who's a very traditional looking superhero comics artist, but they did such good work together on the all new Adam book that I want to see that team back together again. Makes sense. And I think the, the name Celsius was a problem for me from the beginning. I always kept like, okay, do I introduce a villain called Fahrenheit? I was <laughs> It was, it always felt like that doesn't seem to fit her, her national origins or it, it's just so ordinary. It's just like she was yeah. always designed to be a character in a team book. Her powers, her role, her name, it's all very cookie cutter in a way. So uh, I'm glad you changed it. That was like the thing that I could not crack. I think if I changed that name, I, I almost called it 
you know, like by her real name, but I, I, it didn't have like a, that great a sound to it either. So yeah, I think that was probably the key to making this work is changing the name from Celsius. In the beginning of this series, in my mind, I have these things way more developed than I'm, than I'm bothering you with now. But um, she did originally, when she was a young girl in the monastery, she had the fire and ice powers. She was dreaming of herself being a superhero when she got out. So she has these sketches of herself in a costume with the name Celsius with an exclamation point and all that. Mm. And that's part of the story is that she cast that identity away because of all that's happened to her, and now she's the human bomb. She's Caldera. Which also ties into, like, other DCIPs. Right. <laughs> Here's a, an early DCIP, I guess, Challengers of the Unknown. So this is one of our, you know, natural team books. Did you pair off, you know, did you put people that we've already seen in there, or are they the Challengers as they were? Well, actually, you've got several versions. You know, every time they've yeah. they've done a book, they've, they've sort of changed some of the characters in there. Challengers of the Unknown. That that's the title of the book. It didn't see any reason to change that. And also the core concept. You have survivors of near death experiences, but they are all drawn to this location, Challengers Mountain, by recurring dreams and visions that will not leave them alone. They're not all in the same plane. They all have different near-death experiences. The Challengers, once they get to Challengers Mountain, they find that there's a house and a person waiting for them who isn't necessarily behind the visions but knows what's up about it and is ready to organize them into a team to explore this mountain and the Caves of Infinity that are all peppered through it to head off threats from the other sides of reality because they cheated death. They can't be seen by these people that they're opposing. Now, by this point, you can guess the organization that they'll be working against who are connected to um, everything that's going on. They're up against the monarch society, but because these people have technically, they were supposed to be gone. They're not technically a part of the timeline anymore. So, the theory is, you know, the Monarch Society can't see them coming. These people are Lois Lane, Jimmy Olsen, Rex Mason, and Boston Brand. That's who these four people who cheated death are. Obviously, uh, Rex Mason did not become Metamorpho. Um, Boston Brand was not killed. Lois and Jimmy have similar shared near-death experience on a job. They are brought together by a man called Mr. Pennyworth, who has been uh, having dreams he stumbled into secrets, certain secrets, trying to deal with visions he was having about a world where his young master Bruce actually survived that night in Crime Alley. So you have a Pennyworth who lost both Martha and Thomas and Bruce Wayne and was left with the entire Wayne fortune, who gathers these people together who are sharing similar visions to him, and he's sending them on a mission to stop a group that his visions are telling him if they can stop these people, they can get the world back where Master Bruce, where young Master Bruce did not die. So they have to go into all these caves that lead to all these other worlds and possibilities to oppose the Monarch Society in order to make that happen. It almost feels like, you know, this could be a TV series. I really feel like that should be it. You know, like the, the Challengers of the Unknown sounds like the title of a TV series to me. And I wanted this to be one of the titles that would really upset, you know, the fictional readers of DC at the time the most, because this is the one that comes out and says, yeah, a lot of things are different here. There is um, no Superman. There's no Batman. There's no Metamorpho, which hurts me badly, and no Dead Man. And there's no Batman. You have Alfred is left holding all the strings, and he's trying to bring back the world where at least one of the Wayne family survived, but he can barely remember. He's just getting these flashes of what it was. And so my writer 
is Matt Kent. And Paolo Rivera is my artist. They worked on a series for Valiant Comics called The Valiant. And I love Matt Kent's writing. I feel like he can handle some of the personal subtleties of all this, and he can drop in the hints of the other worlds. He can handle the levels of subtlety, but also the wonders of going to all these other realities and the adventure part of it. And Paolo Rivera can draw realistic looking scenes, but also some truly strange stuff. And I feel like that's what this needs. Going up to the top of my list on my favorites here. For me, (laughs) Challengers, it was pretty easy. It's the original team. I think it's, it would be portrayed with a bit more diversity. Like, you know, red could be a woman. So it's not, and they're totally played like the fantastic four without powers. I basically want the child's, or FF, if Jack Kirby had been outright writing them, not just drawing them. Huge, bizarre threats. Anything can happen. The Chows are explorers living life to the fullest, since they also got that reprieve, but also unafraid of death. So that makes them the front line of defense against all manner of monstrosities. You've got alien invasions in this book. You've got giant monsters, weird supernatural threats. Who are you going to call? Challengers of the Unknown. And they are veteran heroes. Uh, with a history that's mentioned, but not necessarily all seen. Cave Carson used to be a member, but he left to do his own thing, as did Niles Calder, the chief, in his case, because he didn't think the child's methods were effective enough. There's too much reaction and not enough action. There's more to that story. I'll get to him later. So I, I just want this to be a big Fantastic Four kind of book set on Earth 1, which... Which is a kind of depopulated at this point because so many other heroes are on other Earths. I love it as a, you know, because a proto Fantastic Four is definitely part of the history of the real book. Someone's got to have that tone in comics right now. And I don't think really anyone does except the Terrifics, which is coming to an end. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I would be signed up for this in a heartbeat. And I love that Cave used to be on the team in chief. Like, I like the legacy is built in, and legacy is a huge part of what I like about the dc universe and which is why you destroyed it in your event yes again like shag said he likes all ages fun books and he created this dark you know adult line when he did this i'm creating something that yes it's part of my concept that people would hate it on purpose but it's also something that i started adding layers to on purpose and it's the exact opposite of a lot of the things i say i want to read so i feel like dan didio here who loves fun happy superhero comics but then directed dc down some of its darkest alleyways because he thought that's what would sell is what i've heard him say you know okay (laughs) next up is chameleon boy let's let's get into this legion stuff there are three legion characters that we need to get through before the end chameleon boy for me is the big one He's the 31st century member of the Roundtable, and Chameleon Boy is the star of a book I call Legion, and he's the only star. But you don't realize it until the end of the first issue, or maybe the first story arc, or even later. It's the Legion continuity you know, like the Paul Levitz. But instead of 5YL, basically, something happens that forces the Legionnaires to each pick a planet, usually their home world, to defend as the means for interstellar travel kind of gets severely compromised or something. Chameleon Boy doesn't go to Durla, they don't want him, but he stays on Earth because it's a hot spot and there's like many villains there. He's come up with a plan where he will take the shape of various legionnaires whose powers he can sort of fake, switching Hmm. even in the middle of a battle. So, you know, you go around the corner and it's Ultra Boy. So no one gets wise to the situation, Really, nobody panics or takes advantage because he's 
he's kind of holding the fort. When he's in Camelot with the knights, he even sometimes leaves a piece of himself behind to act as a low-powered legionnaire. He's learning how to do that, be <laughs> several people at once. The oh, drama wow. of the series is that he's going to be going slowly mad, talking to himself, overextending himself to exhaustion. Eventually, this will lead to the return of the Legion of Superheroes with no need to change the title of the book. How clever that is. Nice. <laughs> Uh, editorially but for the first year at least he's alone he alone is legion he's a legion of one a legion of one that's it by the way like all the knights have been revealed nobody else gets into that camelot book <laughs> chameleon boy was my last one obviously i've already mentioned chameleon boy in my cave carson book so this book is called catch the chameleon so as we know chameleon boy is awakened by the followers of arion when they try to destroy the cosmic key he goes to space using some of the things that they've found underground and all that to find Durla, the changing world as something there is part of the secret to stopping these monarch society people, you know, these followers of Arion who are after him. Um, we follow his quest and it, his attempts to shake the followers. So you discover what the status quo of space DC is through this book. Because he doesn't go, he doesn't know where Derla is. You know, he doesn't even know that's where he's he's from. He's he has barely any memories of his time before he was found by Cave. He's discovering himself, the space of the DC universe, you know, the outer space planets and characters there. As he tries to find his home and also prevent these people from finding it. So I'm putting Paul Levitz and Yildare Sinar on because I wanted to like that version of the Legion when Paul came back. And it just didn't quite work for me, but I really want to give that team, especially that artist, another crack at something like the Legion. You know, I really liked uh, Yildare's art on that incarnation, so I want to give them another swing at it. Same for me. The Legion's return was like trying to go back to like former glories, and it should have worked, but I don't know what it was. It felt tired instead. Another shape-shifting character is Changeling. How did you go about differentiating these two books? Okay, so the book is called Beast Boy Unleashed because, like a lot of people, I just prefer that code name Same. for him. I grew up on Changeling, but as soon as I found out he was called Beast Boy early on when they met the Doom Patrol, which was my first exposure to the Doom Patrol, I was like, that's what I'm calling him, even back then. So the process that saved Gar's life and gave him his powers was at least partially derived from a serum based on chameleon boy's blood so there's a link to chameleon boy here where you know somehow part of how cam ended up in that tube was he was a test subject for something part of that made its way into gar logan's life and gave him his powers to change into animals and whatnot this is a pretty pretty short and simple one chameleon boy while he's off planet the monarch society says hey we'll take the next best thing there's a kid running around with powers derived from Durlin blood, and we can probably divine the clues we need from him. So the Monarch Society picks up the baton because the followers are either in Skataris or they're in space now. The straight-up Monarch Society is pursuing Gar, and they keep pushing him. They keep making the encounters more and more deadly, even though they avoid killing him. But what they're trying to do is to get him to do something Chameleon Boy can do that he can't yet. They want Gar to be able to turn into imaginary creatures. And that's something my Chameleon Boy can do. Something about what was done to him allows him to become imaginary creatures and not just things that he scanned with his antennae. That's revealed 
in the series, but I couldn't talk about it till I got to Changeling's book. So for some reason, they need that to happen before they can capture Gar and use him for their purposes. So for this book, I have Marguerite Bennett and Raphael De La Torre, who are doing a book called Animosity that I've read a bunch of. And I like how that writer and that artist can switch from kind of heartwarming moments to outright horror and obviously can handle drawing and writing a book with a lot of uh, animals that are going to be on the page. And that was, you know, you have to have someone who's good at that to do a Beast Boy book. So that's my my changeling. I also did away with the changeling name. I don't like it. I never liked it. Beast Boy is the name of the book. It's an all-ages book about a mischievous green boy who turns into animals and can talk to them. When I think of Beast Boy, I think of T-Titans Go. I think of Tiny Titans. And that's basically the vibe of this comic. Big cast of animal characters to interact with. Beast Boy feels like an outcast in school. Like he's the only green kid. And everyone's wondering what his, what his deal is. But he feels more at home in an animal body and talking to his animal pals. So I want this to be full-on delightful, charming comedy, all ages. Very simple concept. Yeah, I love it. Uh, this, this, to me, Beast Boy was perfected by that first Titans cartoon. Beast Boy and Raven were redeemed, you know, but made into something as good as what I remembered them being in the old comics. But then I reread them and went, these characters were never that good. They're that good now. So the great memories, I think, mostly of the George Perez art, because I've been following a course, tighten up the defense. And it's just it's been a bittersweet journey through that series because I remember how much I loved it. And then I'm facing what it really was on the page. And I'm like, but man, that art was good. Final five. This is it. Okay, the final five books starts here. We're in the last leg, Max. And we start with Chemical King. So first of all, Chemical King, to me, sounded like an industrial company where, you know, a Batman villain might accidentally be spawned. So the the character is actually called Chemical Kid. Now, second of all, because I kept Legion continuity pretty intact and Chemical King is dead, I felt free to reinvent the character as a 21st century character. So my Chemical Kid is a teenager in an industrial town, falls in a tub of chemicals. It's the, you know, the classic story. Uh, He gets powers, and it's his story as a young hero in Becoming. Now, the DC Encyclopedia identified the uh, 30th century version as gay, even though in the comics they were much more ambiguous about it. Yeah. But we're totally going there. I mean, this is 2020. In fact, he has a lot of chemistry (laughs) with a kid called Lyle at school. But can you trust him with his secrets, you know? It's like... uh, and maybe that person could become Invisible Kid in time, because if you can manipulate chemicals, then maybe you can recreate that invisibility serum somehow. You know, there there are ways. But just your metaphor there about being unseen and stuff like that, too, is, is yes. perfect. What's important is that we do not repeat the mistakes of the past. Namely, that no one back then really understood what his po- how his powers worked and what they could do. So there needs to be some research. <laughs> Even a touch of flash facts in there, in the way the powers are written. Like maybe he learned something in chemistry class that day, and then he can use it on the street against chemo later. Stuff like that. I think they did better with the new chemical kid in the Legion Academy portions of Paul Levitt's most recent Legion run. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And there's the Blue Beetle villain Catalyst, 
had it going on in, in terms of chemical powers. So I know it's doable. I just think Legion writers back in the 70s had no clue. He seemed to be able to do anything. And uh, not necessarily, even the who's who entry is clearer about what his powers might be or how you could use chemistry altering powers to good effect. But I think he would be like the ultimate Spider-Man, you know, like the very young hero who's discovering himself and in an X-Men fashion is also discovering his uh, identity through the series. That's great. The chemical nonsense powers, um, just it's part of the fun of reading those old books, but it's also just like, don't hinge a character on the concept of chemistry when none of you know anything about chemistry <laughs> like it's like me writing a book about cars which you know i don't know a thing about cars i would be like this one is a, a really cool one that goes fast let's bring back hot wheels book. Yeah, yes <laughs> my book is called and again lawyers be damned condo arlick and the philosopher's stone Okay. He is in the same future that our Captain Comet was from, that Captain Adam popped into, but he doesn't get displaced. So it's a hundred thousand years in the future. So he helps Adam survive after the first jump, even though his fellow um, far future wasteland mutant brother has been displaced by this person. He helps him because, hey, uh, this hundred thousand years in the future is a blasted wasteland, and these mutants that have uh, awakened from these vaults from the latest cataclysm have no clue about this world either. They're just trying to survive it. They all have powers. This is your proto legion of superheroes. And my tribute kind of to the um, clone batch that popped up during the five YL storyline. So the entire legion are a bunch of uh, mutants that came out of these vaults with no memory of anything dealing with a world they never made. And they're all scattered. The group is not together yet. So he's, you know, he's helping Captain before he jumps away from the future. He helps Captain Adam. And Adam sort of names him Chemical King based on the chemical nonsense powers he has. Chemical King, ironically, has these powers that don't seem very useful. He can speed up or slow down chemical reactions, which is handled pretty realistically in this book. And that, oh, that's kind of cool, but, you know someone's trying to kill us right now and they don't really understand a lot of chemistry. So it's not that helpful. He's eventually led to, um, because there's these people pursuing captain Adam, even in the future, he's led to something that they're trying to collect. The philosopher's stone is basically, it, it, it was something that was used to create all of these mutants. And when Kondo touches the philosopher's stone, all of a sudden his full potential of his powers is realized. He can do amazing things. He almost is almost Dr. Manhattan level, although it's very draining for him to use this connection. So he can like turn a bunch of animals or, you know, mutants, per, or beasts pursuing him to glass. But then he is tapped and he's got to get out of there. So it's him trying to keep the Philosopher's Stone out of the hands of these people that are pursuing him while he's also trying to collect the other mutants to form what we will recognize as the Legion, even though it's 100,000 years in the future now. So my creative team is taken from a book that deals with a far future Earth. It's called Protector over at Image, and it's only a few issues old right now. The writers are Simon Roy and Daniel Benson, and the artist is someone whose name I will not pronounce correctly, Artyom Trakhanov. But that book deals with a far future Earth, and it has exactly the look I would want just different enough from classic Legion where people would be mad at it the same way they were mad at Keith Giffen's art in the five years later. 
<laughs> so again, I'm not losing touch with that concept that these books must also agitate people. These things are very intriguing in a way that you would, biding your time, okay, you're waiting for the universe to reboot, but you would still find these like this year of comics or however long it lasts. Yeah, I want the small vocal group of fans that liked this stuff that no one else knows what the heck they are thinking. <laughs> okay. You know? Well, you mentioned the chief before because he was part of Celsius's story in your yeah. case. So, or Caldera's story. So, where do we go with him in in a solo series? So the title of this book tips my hand a little bit, and finally, because this is where it should be tipped. The title is called Niles Calder and the Negative Man. We're going to rip the curtain aside here. The chief fakes his own death, not to just hide from Caldera and try to get out of, uh, you know, like divorce court or whatever. He is trying to hunt down and stop his own even more, question mark, evil doppelganger known as, in his own terms, the Negative Man. And this is a version of himself that is walking around without a wheelchair and is up to no good and is taunting him about it. So the chief figures out that his own quest for immortality, which is baked into the chief's like first appearance and his enemy of General Immortus and everything, is somehow responsible for the existence of the negative man. His own quest for the immortality serum somehow caused this doppelganger to exist. He has to go on a quest to keep himself from ever being able to recreate the serum. Um, so he races around the world, avoiding both the negative man and his own estranged wife, Arani, who is trying to find him in her own book, trying to keep the negative man from preserving the means to recreate the serum and all other kinds of you know plots that this guy seems to be up to. Because if he doesn't destroy all of it, he knows, the chief, the real chief knows, he will be tempted to make the serum anyway because the chief is in fact living on borrowed time tying into the challengers just as a you know a nod he is dying and he knows that when he comes to the moment when he's facing death his ego will win out he knows that about himself so he's trying to make it impossible for him to create the perfected version of this serum and he's being opposed by a more ambitious version of himself and he doesn't know how that person came to be so my creative team is quite simply Grant Morris and Richard Case. <laughs> okay. They're back. They're the only people I, I can imagine doing this book. Besides the fact that I'm going to read the secret part of this to hopefully give you something like a life preserver to hang on to. The negative man is the escape fictional doppelganger of the chief and also the chief himself. As the butterfly collector, he completes the final ritual in order to ensure his continued existence. He becomes the fictional character in the driven to success story told by Cain and Abel at the House of Secrets. That's where the killer came from that killed Abel. It's this guy. It's the chief. Uh, becoming fictional and then real again was the only way to ensure that the new serum will work. It doesn't – and it won't prove unstable as it has in Arani's case. The reason the immortality serum won't work is you're not supposed to be immortal if you're from this reality. You need to scrub yourself. You need to become fictional and come back. So that's why Captain Marvel exists too. He is bait. He is a bigger 
fictional escapee creating a you know signal noise for the the negative man this new version of the chief to hide behind so people can't find him people that figure out what he is there's too much static created by captain marvel for people to zero in on him <laughs> so-, so the chief is chasing himself trying to keep himself from becoming this thing the negative man is also what created the time wave to make sure things are unstable enough for him to pull this off i'm amazed that you went so meta with it even though <laughs> I mean, we've had like these big crossover events that were meta. I think Graham Morrison put meta stuff in Final Crisis. And what I'm most surprised about is that I haven't gone there yet, not really, (laughs) because it's very much my style. (laughs) This actually all was born when I was looking at the last name Calder and what it means. And, you know, you look into the linguistics, it can mean a stream or a hollow that a stream runs through. And then I started thinking, well, time is a stream. A hollow can be a cave. A river can be underground. And that's really where this all came from. Is that also like the origin of caldera? So that you get calder, caldera? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, It's like, I'm like, it's one big stupid concept, which is one of the criticisms that the fictional readers will have of this is like, we get it. It's time. It's the cave it's the river you know and the monarch societies everywhere it's this one big mono concept that parades the whole thing yeah mono monarch Um, okay you're a real wordsmith (laughs) i promised a a link to the challengers when the chief left the challengers it was because he wanted he, he wanted the organization to be more proactive at least that's what he says if you ask the challengers they booted him out because he was conducting unethical experiments so whatever the reason Think of Marvel's AIM and imagine such an organization of super scientists exists in the DCU and is working on the side of right, albeit not always through ethical means. Niles Calder is the chief of the organization, which we'll call Cadmus, if you don't mind. I think it's a highly unethical and bizarre scientific organization itself. That's perfect, yeah. But we follow all of these we follow like a lot of scientists who now work there. They feel bullied by him or maybe their teacher's pets or like the Doom Patrol in actual comics. They're simply pawns in his long game, whatever they feel it might be. So I want petty office politics side by side with secret world saving missions and moral dilemmas. The chief is sort of almost in the background of all this. You know, he's not the main cast. He's the he's the guy that just shows up once in a while. Uh, and is the catalyst for all this. I wanted to call this one, Don't Call Me Chief, okay? So Dr. Calder doesn't like the name. <laughs> it's something what other people call him. And yes, it means, and that's a Cadmus link. It means I've got Jimmy Olsen in there as a Cadmus intern. So uh, this Aww. is my little link to the Superman legacy, I guess, is in here. I've been reading a lot of Fourth World comics. I'm g- trying to get through the, the Fourth World omnibus. I'm oh, well yeah. past the point where... Kirby was writing uh, Jimmy Olsen, but all of that stuff it kind of inspires me. It's in my head right now, and so it comes off, you know, in these episodes. Yeah, this is becoming a neck and neck race for my favorite over on your side at this point. I've, there's like three that are right on the heels of each other. This is this is in. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> well, that's got so many things that I like in it. You know, like uh, one of the things about Fifty Two that I liked was Oolong Island and all the scientists. You know around the DC universe trying to work together and you know the crazy version of the uh, another attempt at redeeming egg foo pops up and all of that I love the mad scientist side of the DC universe so much yeah so that was also part of it I also thought of that okay next up is chlorophyll kid so for me 
pretty easy because there's a Secret Origins issue with the origin of the Legion of Substitute Heroes by Ty Templeton. It's wonderful. And Chlorophyll Kid is more or less the main character in that. So I'm just handing the reins of the Chlorophyll Kid comic to Templeton. It doesn't have to be any harder than that for me. As for the premise, well, while Chameleon Boy is the main hero of the 31st century, there may still be others, you know, on Earth, like Chloro. Uh, When Polar Boy left the subs, the team fell apart. Many moved on with their lives. But Chloro is trying to put it back together again with whoever he can get. So the initial thrust of the series is him trying to recruit other morts from the Legion's many rejects, whether they used to be subs or not, so we can have new characters in there. And the like kooky adventures that result in him more or less failing to put the team back together. What we're discovering, and that Rao is slow to get, is that he can handle himself alone, even if a bit accidentally. But even so, it's Really, it's the company he misses. So he's never going to stop trying to get a team going because because he's lonely. There's just a little bit of bittersweetness yeah. to it, but it is a comedy series. Oh, that's great. The Legion is just one of my all-time DC loves. So uh, that just hits all kinds of targets for me right there. I, I love the subs. And my book is called Chlorophyll Kid and the Substitute Heroes. That's That's the title. But it takes place in present day. Chlorophyll Kid ends up being... Chemical King's Kondo Arlick's ancestor. Uh, his powers are awakened by the time wave. And he has, you know, Chemical King has all these powers to control all kinds of processes. Well, chlorophyll kids are more focused. It's just controlling plants. And the comic book version of being able to control plants means essentially you can animate them and do Green Lantern things with them or whatever. But, you know, he's, he's got those more focused powers that come to being before they should that again the time wave messes with things and of course the monarch society starts pursuing him because his powers awakened before they should be and having a direct line to chemical kings as they do is because his powers are what provides the basis for the creation of the philosopher's stone like his ability to change things to change the interactions between things is the proto version of what they need to create the Philosopher's Stone that is used to create all those mutants 100,000 years in the future. So he's being pursued. People are trying to harvest him for parts. Uh, it's got you know parallels to the Beast Boy thing. And I'm even playing with Beast Boy ends up being in this series because the kid is going around finding others. He can also awaken their powers before they're supposed to happen You know, in, in the concept of this series. And they are also sort of minor or silly powers by themselves like that, you know, the, the subs. So he puts together a group of these kids to help him escape the monarch society and also preserve their role in being able to be a part of what creates the philosopher's stone, but not for the society, but for the group that creates those soldiers in the future, the Legion in the future that helps out captain Adam, you know, he creates that team along the way. And like I said, I considered having Beast Boy even be a part of that because these books ended up having very similar themes. Now, my creative team is Jody Hauser writing and Marguerite Savage on art who have done Faith for Valiant. And I feel like their tone would fit this book perfectly. It's, it's a young hero who's unsure of himself on the run. 
and is going to have chlorophyll kids personality, as you've hinted at, is just uh, on the surface, very positive pro-social cheerleader type yeah. character. And faith was certainly that too. So yeah, definitely. That's the, I get the vibe. Chlorophyll kid is a minor character. He shares a page with Chris KL 99. So this is a, a, like a Buck Rogers kind of space hero in the original strips who kind of looks like Jimmy Olsen, you ask me, but maybe it's just Kurt Swan's art, maybe. What would you do with Chris in your line, yeah? This was the most dreaded one for me, because even after reading that Who's Who entry, I was like, I do not care about this character. I, I like. So this was a complete reinvention, uh, even harder than all the other ones for me. The book is called Night Lancer 99, and I'm going to go bullet points through this, because we've already uh, revealed a lot of the secret here. This is the chief's most secret project kept even from himself. When the chief discovered his connection to the negative man, he activated an abandoned fictomechanical backup of himself because, of course, he was already working on a way to do that and ab abandoned it a long time ago, um, which is how he figures out who the negative man is, which will now be able to function ironically due to the negative man's existence in this reality. The thing now works. He calls the thing DC, short for Dr. Calder, or Doc. He has wiped knowledge. The, the thing itself wipes its knowledge of its own existence from the chief and therefore the negative man's mind and begins his mission. He's going from one era and location to another, collecting genetic material from many of the stars of the rest of the line and others that don't get books because the line fails before they can happen. So you have these previews of books that never happened by him visiting these other characters. And then he collects the sadly insane Chris King from star labs, because we still have Chris who found the H dial tried to merge with it and ended up completely out of his mind captured in star labs. This doc collects Chris and takes off with him using the powers of all these other subjects. Doc stabilizes Chris and the H dial creates a new ultra powerful being that calls itself night Lancer 99. That's Chris's idea. Maybe he's not quite back to total sanity yet and called KL 99 by doc. The series follows the birth and training and development of the ultimate weapon against what the negative man will become the butterfly collector doc uh, looks not much like the chief. He's walking around upright. He's to throw people off the, the trail and also just the nature of his, his creation. He has no body hair. His skin is also completely blue. And yes, I'm going for like a Manhattan parallel just with the visual um, and his ability to jump around and just collect pieces of other people. He's, he's pretty powerful all by himself and that he's this fictional mechanical hybrid thing that can leave reality when he feels like it. KL-99 is deployed against the negative man's final form, and what he can do to give it like a link to the 99 concept is he can have 99 superpowers at once, all at level 99, which, you know, all, almost ultimate capability, and he can change those powers at will. So he jumps in at the end of reality to fight the butterfly collector, and the, the final issue is every page is a splash page fight scene with these two incredibly powerful characters the night lancer is defeated in the end and it's revealed that all that fight scene took place in like a nanosecond of time but it distracted the butterfly collector from what he had done which was completely frozen arani calder in place she having the one power that can destroy him the human bomb and she ends up grabbing you know like because he took his eye off the ball for a second she grabs a hold of the butterfly collector by you know, by a wing 
and says, once again, Niles, you forgot about me. Here's a reminder. And she lets loose the power of the human bomb, destroys the butterfly collector. And since they are at the vanishing park, this all goes ends up at the zoo outside of time. It erases everything the negative man did retroactively throughout all of time. The line ends, and that's it. And Irani is left as the only person who remembers the time wave. <laughs> and you managed to give us the ending on the last entry, which I think is uh, pretty brilliant. <laughs> this took some doing. And uh, before I forget, the writer who I mentioned before, Dan Didio, who I feel doesn't get enough credit as a writer because he's like the human target, so to speak, uh, for everything we haven't liked about DC. He got this book because, man, this is like the big secret weapon and it's all these other characters and it's your buddy kind of thing with Doc and Chris. And, you know, it has this tone that I think he can really get. And the artist, I, I've, I've just got to uh, – it's Kevin McGuire. Uh, I'm just bringing him in because he's not here yet and I want him on something that – does a lot of different DC characters and goes crazy. Believe it or not, for me, Chris KL 99 was the the first one I cracked. It was just looking through the book, you know, okay, I got to do this. This was the most daunting. Once I started getting into it, once I I thought of the Camelot thing, it all fell into place. But uh, originally I'm going, oh, uh, can I keep doing these episodes? Because this is the fourth one and I feel dry because I've, I've <laughs> had to do this every time, right? I'm doing the experiment every time. I thought of that. Sorry, but I thought of that while I was doing this. I'm like, Siskoid's got to do so many of these. <laughs> and not beat <laughs> myself, you know? And so, and yeah. so, uh, <laughs> so really, uh, it was a pun that cracked Chris here because the series is called Kill 99. Chris KL 99, Kill 99. And it's about a violent, humorously grimdark bounty hunter in the style of Lobo. Our hero, Chris, is still named after Christopher Columbus, but not because he was an explorer, rather because he was a butcher in revised history. Chris is the leader of a kill squad of the year 2299, along with White Martian Hulk and Venusian scientist and tech expert Jero. It's a shade of what it used to be. They go after big targets. They get into trouble to prove how badass they are. It's that kind of stuff. There will be an issue where Camelot tries to recruit him and they change their mind. If Lobo was meant to laugh at the 90s extreme, I think the 2010s and 2020s have their own extremes that we can and should send up. So this is like, <laughs> this is what Lobo was trying to do, especially before, <laughs> before people took it at face value for some reason. It's doing it for now. It's doing it for the Jeff Johns, uh, you know, identity crisis era of, of DC Comics. It's it's going to laugh at the Dan DiDio darkness, basically. That's yeah. what this book is for, for me. Hey, that, that whole Genesis has my full support. That is basically how this happened to me, is just one word I was looking into the meaning of. And then I went, what if I beat that so far down into the ground, I found Scartaris. You know? <laughs> and you did. <laughs> I do have a bonus book. I go first in this case. Catwoman is in this issue of Who's Who, right? So, and then I decided there's a very, it was an important decision to still count her as a villain because she was in these incarnations. Even though she's been holding her own series for years now, Catwoman was not going to get a book, you know, a de facto book. But I thought, well, she's a natural for the bonus book anyway, right? But that was almost too easy. I felt like, 
well, I can't do that because it's so, it's like robbing myself of a choice in a way, or a more interesting. But she's still in there because instead I offer a team book. It's called Cat Girls. It's somewhere between Gotham Girls and Gotham City Sirens. It stars Catwoman, Cheetah, and Cheshire, and they're all anti-hero lady thieves in a way. Cheshire not so much, but Catwoman is an animal activist, but a kleptomaniac. Cheetah is a rich socialite involved in lots of charities, but she's also impossibly vain. Cheshire, she's an assassin trying to reform, and by reforming it means she's going to try to steal instead of kill. <laughs> so I kind of play her as, um, like in Doctor Who terms, she'd be Leela. Uh, where she uses lethal force and the other ones admonish her, but when they need her to, to use lethal force, they kind of let her. Kind of like that. So none of them do what they do for money. It's not about that for yeah. them. And each one will bring a supporting cast member. Catwoman, she's got Catman. He's Selena's bisexual friend and ex-boyfriend on good terms. And he's the one, he's always telling her, how it is. He tells her straight. He's that character. A confidant. Then we have Wonder Woman is in this book. She's Priscilla's preachy foil. Uh, she's oh. there to ruin their fun, basically. So she's the hero that's going to come in more often than not to spoil whatever they're doing. And then there's Red Arrow, who is Jade's on and off boyfriend, who's always trying to get back together, and the other girls are grown and roll their eyes at it. <sighs> But, you know, there's, there's a bond between them. It's, it's a toxic relationship <laughs> that's going to play out. So this is a little bit like, I don't know, it's like Marvel Divas or that kind of thing where it's kind of humorous. It, it's also got more grounded stories than just like plain humor. But it does play on the humor of relationships and seeing these badass girls hang out together in a sort of girl power kind of context. Well, I knew you'd like this one because you're a cat person like myself. So yeah. And I like that it plays on not just relationships, but different kinds of relationships too. Like each, each one of these characters, their other character isn't just their significant other. What did you bring to it? Is there some sort of connecting book to all this? Well, of course there is. Um, I, I ended up landing on um, probably one of the least interesting or loved characters in this entire book. But once I saw the name, I knew I had to bring him in. The title of this book is Julian Day, The Linear Man. And so, yeah, he's based on Calendar Man. Because the time wave, I'm like, I cannot not have Calendar Man in the mix here. It'd just be like walking by him on purpose. And that's happened to him enough, I think. But uh, I'll just read my little synopsis off here. Uh, Julian Day was a joke. Having failed yet again in his role of the super criminal known as the Calendar Man, Day was receiving a beating from his fellow inmates as a guard looked on. When Day fell back and struck his head on the bars of his cell, time stopped. Well, the time wave happened, and Julian found himself simply able to walk out of prison while everyone else was frozen in time. As he walked, being the only person who was affected this way by the time wave, he was being exposed to what it was. So he received visions. Again, another thread through all these books. Not of Nathaniel Adam, but of the man who really caused time to break, his, as far as he could tell, Niles Calder. Eventually, that effect wore off, and he was back in time stream but he was way far away from prison by the time that happened so deeply offended his mind you know was affected he was he was driven a little crazy by this event even more so than he was before so deeply offended that someone would tamper with the sacred linear progression of time that gives the calendar its meaning julian takes on a new role as the linear man 
dedicated to restoring the proper order of time by killing Niles Calder. So it's another person that's pursuing Niles, but for his own messed up reasons and is being used as a pawn by the negative man in the monarch society the whole time, even though he's not aware of it. And so in becoming more of like this driven, dedicated killer type character he's still really being used as a mort and a pawn like he always has been his whole life i picked ed brubaker and sean phillips from the criminal series to do this very realistic kind of stark looking book about a character who'd once been one of the more colorful jokes in the batman family that's interesting that would probably rescue the character so in the same way that <laughs> deadshot was rescued by suicide squad or you know it, it happens and then when you reboot the universe then suddenly people are looking at that character and saying well no he's legit and we can bring in some elements from time wave into main continuity is that part of your plan what are the secrets that you haven't told us that you haven't revealed like you said there will be spillover there will be effects carrying forward from the time wave but they won't be like necessarily like you said they won't be like story effects this story erases itself and only irani who is no longer even caldera remembers it you know Th some things are different like irani was never celsius her 70s version of the doom patrol didn't happen there will be little differences here and there that the new creative guard takes the time wave as a, a chance to do what they think is fixing everything, if that sounds familiar in DC Comics <laughs> history. But there will be after effects, like some elements of these characters, like you said, will be like, well, I did like that part. Let's make that part of that character part of the new status quo. Even though we're kind of going back to business as usual, we're going to borrow the things we liked from this doomed imprint and walk away with it and say, hey, you know, thanks for the input and carry it forward. So even though it was a plan to just shake up the DC universe so everyone would hail the return of the boring old status quo that they said they were so, you know, done with, it's still going to have an after effect and cause all kinds of continuity problems as in the future as these differences build up <laughs> and require yet another crisis. It's going to be part of the history of the real world DC comics um, in that it was an attempt to solve a problem that ends up creating the next problem. Well, I certainly appreciate all the work that you put into it. <laughs> It started doing a lot of its own work after a bit. Uh, this stuff just started coming to me, and I had to open up the Google. That's why I put it in Google Docs so I could work on it wherever I was, because it wouldn't stop adding more nonsense to itself after a bit. <laughs> it, it's a little bit um, – this, is this a podcast, or is it an exorcism? <laughs> Yeah, I'm yeah, I'm trying to get this thing. This this thing belongs to others now. <laughs> yeah, it's, now it's our problem. Now we're dreaming yeah. about it. So <laughs> it's time to play the little game that the Shag started last time, which is if you only had money for one book from the other person's line, how would you spend it? What book do you buy? Well, I had it down to a final four, and I'll at least tell you what the final four was. Um, uh, I loved your Challenger's book, therefore. I loved the chief, um, which tied into it. Uh, and you know, I, I expressed my appreciation for the mad scientist corners of the DC universe. So that kind of almost started edging ahead of the challengers. And then there was whiz comics, your anthology from another world with other worlds and the tone that it was going for. That's something that's so missing from comics now that I, I want that to be real. And then there was your freaking bonus book. The cat girls thing is just, I don't know why they're not doing that on DC universe right now. 
That's just like the sequel to the Harley Quinn animated series. That's just ready made to go. But I think I've got a, if I had to just, I only have money for one. I'm going for Wiz. I'm going for the anthology, the bang for the buck, the nice um, optimistic tone and just the, the sheer amount of cool stuff I'm going to get in that comic. So the cost-effective one. For me, it was like, okay, do I go for one of these uh, books that, that really tell like the bigger story? Is it going to be the Wave Rider book? Is it going to be the, the Challengers really spoke to me as well? Is it the Chief book, which also is like a big part of you know what's happening in Time Wave? Or I might just go with something that tickles my fancy, but I, I thought the Zucru book had like a tone and a very different kind of story to tell that was my front runner for a long time but the fact that you put grant morrison and richard case on the chief book kind of you know sealed (laughs) the deal i mean is there a grant morrison book i will not read i have yet to find i I haven't liked everything he's done but i certainly you know look at all of that which reminds me i should check out his green lantern series i'm I haven't read season two yet of Green Lantern. I was there for the whole first, and it was it's he's doing his own thing and does not care as usual what anyone else is doing. And I like that fine. I am of the Bob Haney school of continuity. Yeah. So that's good stuff. <laughs> dear listeners, it's time for you to go to fireandwaterpodcast.com and tell us what you think. Would you read any of these books? If you were in charge, what series would you offer using these characters? And I know our good friend Frank has already started oh. on, on issue four at this point, probably because uh, he's been doing it. I mean, it's worth looking at the comments just for the other crazy and interesting and brilliant ideas that listeners bring to this uh, almost as a kind of audition pieces. I hope you had fun, Max, that you are now free of this monster. <laughs> yes, I finally escaped. Yeah, I've sent it back to the fictional realm. <laughs> well, we'll talk again in a couple of days to see if you're still dreaming about it because, you know, oh, no. it may not be over. <laughs> Thanks for trying this experiment with me. And, uh, you know, I've got to sleep on a whole other issue of Who's Who. Yeah, that is your job. <laughs> it's my burden to bear. Uh, I thought this up and, uh, damn it, I'm going to get to issue 26. So until next time, who's editing? We, we are. And we really wanted to tell a story that was a different pace. It's like Goonies with superpowers, you know, magic. <laughs> and the, really, the theme of Shazam to me is not about a pure good kid getting superpowers. It's about uh, family's what it can be, not what it should be, you know. And that to me sums up the, the character and what he needs yeah. to learn and really what the book's all about. And for, again, I, I want the book to be about something other than a cartoon character getting hit with a bolt of lightning.